Okertov, we're going to speak a little bit about Pesach. I want to introduce you to a fascinating idea that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs brings up in his uh, Haggadah, his famous Haggadah. These essays in his Haggadah are absolutely amazing. They're uh, very, very, very insightful. And there's one which I never forget. It is the one called Pesach, Freud, and Jewish Identity. So Freud was a famous psychologist. He lived in Austria. He was an Austrian psychologist in the late 19th and early 20th century. He spent the very, very end of his life um, as a refugee because the Holocaust was beginning. So that's like the time period that he was in. Whenever things in Vienna started going very bad for the Jews, he went, I don't know, he went to London or something. And... uh, and because ultimately he was Jewish. Now he was he was someone who denied his Judaism and was not was not religious in any in any sense at, at all, uh, and so on. And I think he had very negative he had a very negative opinion of Judaism. I'm not an expert in this, but I apparently know, I know. Is this a famous, is this a famous this is famous famous Sigmund, know, Sigmund Freud. So so. Um, I I don't know if he was necessarily self hating. I don't think he was the type to. What was it, what was, to what was to just hate Jews like he wasn't like a Noam Chomsky type who just hates himself and so on, but uh, but what was, what's interesting is that look it seems like he he saw that Judaism did more bad than good as a religion because it because from what I understand he saw that Judaism didn't allow the human um, this human tendencies to flourish and he said when you bottle up those human tendencies they'll end up coming back with a vengeance later that's what that was his opinion i i would see maybe that that could be more other religions i don't think judaism I mean, when does you're not that. when you're not in it and you look at it from an outside observer yeah you say it's all about restrictions and restricting yourself and yeah but that could, that's a separate argument i don't i don't even want to get into it I, I think he's wrong about that but that's what they they say about what he, how he perceived Judaism. Again, this is all secondhand. I'm not an expert in Freud. However, so Rabbi Sachs points out that at the end of Freud's life, he wrote a very, very weird, very weird book called Moses and Monotheism. And it's actually his last book. And in the book, he claims something along the lines as, as this. He says, Moshe, as depicted in the story of the Torah, is his true nationality is that he's Jewish. Okay, he's born to a Jewish father and mother. And then what happens? He gets sent into the palace because the Jewish babies were, were being, you know, were, were, they were trying to kill the Jewish babies. He gets sent out into the palace through whatever means. He ends up in the palace and he's raised in the palace. However, when Moshe grows up, as we see in the Pasuk, um, he grew up and he went out to his brethren. Who did he consider his brothers to be? The Jewish people. And then ultimately this Jewish person who was brought up in the house in the kingdom but had no real royal blood in him becomes a leader of the Jewish people who competes with the kingdom of Egypt, with the empire of Egypt. He said... This is now Freud speaking. Now Freud said there must be some uh, misrepresentation in this story. Because what I believe, said Freud, is that the Torah was, um, what's it called? It was, 
it was, it's not the actual story. The Torah was rewritten. And the original story was actually that Moshe was born in the palace to royalty. And then he went and he spent some time in the house of Yochebed and Amram. And that's how we learned to care about the Jews. But really, he's, calling Moshe a convert? he's saying Moshe was a convert. He's saying Moshe was originally had royal blood. And that royal blood was what ended up to becoming, coming to fruition whenever he became the leader of the Jewish people. And that's where his actual ability to lead came from? from his royal that, that, was, that was Freud's thing. Okay? So Freud's whole approach to the story of Moshe is that the Jewish people basically are, are fraudulently telling the story. And the story really is that Moshe was royalty born into the house of Paro. And because he was royalty, he knew how to lead, he knew how to rule. So when he went out and he identified with the Jewish people, he was able to help the Jewish people. Now, it was a weird thing, and a lot of people talk about how Freud could write such a thing, because it doesn't make any sense. Where, why would Freud... He has no evidence to this, and there, he didn't, doesn't bring any proof. He just makes the assumption. And there are a lot of reasons, logical and, and also like archaeological, where you know that there's no such text ever. There's no reason to say such a thing. But he had insisted on saying it, and Rabbi Sachs says the reason he thinks that Freud said it is because if you look at every single other story... In mythology, it's always that's always the storyline. Every other story in mythology, the storyline is something like man is born in the palace, the man gets lost along the way, or as a child, he gets lost. He finds himself in the house of some no name, you know, lower level peasants. And then the guy finds himself to be in a so at some time later, the guy finds himself to be in a position of power. He starts to excel when it comes to leadership. And in the mythology, the reason he excelled in his leadership was because he had the royal blood in him originally. He's just an orphan child. But because of that royal blood, he, the, the power was within him to succeed. And what Rabbi Sachs claims is that the reason Freud was insisting that this is also the story of the Torah is because for Freud to admit that on this key point, the Torah has a completely different storyline from all other myths, means that Freud then couldn't claim that the Torah is a myth. Because... Meaning he's saying this, he's giving the opinion on this, but he's acknowledging that the Torah was... But because he's acknowledging that if this story is true, that Moshe was from the house of Amram and Yocheved, and not from the palace, and that's the story, and, and through his being part of the slave class, still became a king, he said, that would make the story so different from all the other myths in history that I would have to acknowledge that there's something unique about the story. And because Freud, as, an, as a Jew who did not want to acknowledge his Judaism, didn't want to acknowledge that the Torah story is unique, he couldn't admit this. So... I thought this was a, a fascinating thing here. I'll bring you the other stories in which, in which you have the same storyline, but the one who reaches the throne is the one who has the royal blood in his veins. Story of Cyrus, Oedipus, Romulus, Karna, Paris, Perseus, Her Heraclus, and Gilgamesh. So these are all myths, examples of myths that all have the same exact storyline. Man is from royal blood, falls, goes into the slave class, shows that he's excelling, becomes a leader, and it's all because he was originally had the, he had the royal blood in him. So what's the idea? Uh, first of all, the idea is 
that there are a lot of subtleties in our stories of the Torah which we don't appreciate unless we see the context of other stories. And, and if you really want to get an appreciation of the Torah, you have to see how unique it is from other stories. So for example, all the other stories that have to do with leadership, the leadership is in the blood of the person. And in Moshe's case, he, not only is the leadership not in his blood, he is part of the slave class. And when he's approached to be the leader, he doesn't even want to be the leader. He thinks it's not a natural fit. He has to grow into the part. Now that makes the Torah so different that it makes you think. You know, some people may have the tendency to want to call the Torah a myth like all other myths. So then if you want to say that, you have to contend with these questions. Why, does the Torah, why is the Torah so different? Why are there so, so many fundamental differences? And I'll tell you where the difference in myth versus Torah come from. The reason, you know, hu- human mythology, all these stories that are not historical that are myth they they come about because of the will of the people who write them meaning it has to do with the reason they become popular is because they represent something within the heart of man right and those myths that they want to claim that power is in the royal blood those reinforce the common system of the times in which the people in power considered themselves to be like divinely elected that they were that they have power because they're unique. And that's why all of the myths show that the person who has the royal blood in his veins will be able to rule because it's, these myths are written by people, by people who want to preserve the status quo of those who are in power have, div- have given, been given the right to rule by, in some divine way or have something unique in their blood. And now when the Torah comes and says that Moshe was able to outdo the divine king Paro with no royal blood in his veins, what is the Torah saying? It's saying the opposite. It's saying that we don't consider the fact that someone is born into royalty as something that gives him any, any right to rule. We're not preserving the status quo of some people at the top Dictating to the people on the bottom, to the slave class, right? Well, that's not that's not the philosophy of the Torah. The Torah is taking a completely radically revolutionary approach, which is the person who gets the rule is the one who is best, who earns it, and that's very similar to David Amelech, who's the eighth son of, and wasn't even considered, right? And ironically, he also points out Rabbi Sachs that Shaul, who was who was more royalty because he looked handsome and he had all the characteristics of things, he he did not end up succeeding, right? So, fascinating thing, the, the mythology tends to reinforce the status quo, right? The, the mythology of the Goyim, it reinforces the status quo. While the fact that the Torah so much goes against the status quo means that if you're a real thinker and you want to think about the Torah, honestly, you have to contend with these things. You have to contend with the fact that the Torah is doing something that's very unnatural. And it's telling human beings, it's telling the rulership class that you have no real reason to rule if you're no good. That's telling everybody else that you do have a chance. And it's telling everybody else who's on the lower class that you do. Now, if you think about it, if, if let's say the Torah was written by some guy and not Borei Olam, what would the guy have done if it's written by some person? He would do the same thing as all other myths, which is, let me suck up to the rulers, tell them that, yes, you guys do have the, the right to rule and things like that, so that my book doesn't get censored or so that I could get, be respected in their circles. It's a government thing. So, so, exactly. So the Torah 
it's so unnatural what the Torah is doing, making the ruler someone who comes from the slave class because who was the Torah? It, it means the Torah had no interest in impressing anyone and wasn't influenced by anyone. The fact that it's a, a meritocracy of rulership is so unique that it, it's one of the things that points, it's one of the things that even an anti-Jew like Freud could not contend with. And he had to rewrite the Torah just to deal with that fact. Fascinating, fascinating article I thought I would share. Baruch Adonai Lulam. Amen v'amen.